So insidious were the actions of Judas Iscariot that his name continues to be used as an insult and a, and a slander even 2,000 years later across language barriers and, and cultures. Judas is a name that nearly everyone understands and we all know that it is a name that is synonymous with treachery and betrayal. And while John has mentioned, John the Gospel writer here, has mentioned Judas a few times in earlier chapters in our study here in John's Gospel, today we're going to look at this passage in which this disciple of Jesus Christ, Judas Iscariot, he gets up and walks out on the Lord. And I should say that even as we work through this, there's a lot more than just simply that in this Chapter. So to turn over there if you're not already to John chapter 13. I want to read verses 1 through 30 this morning. It's been a, it's been a few weeks since we've been in John's gospel. Um, so we can use a little bit of a, re of a review. But we're going to spend most of our time looking at verses 18 to 30. But I want to read verses 1 through 30. So John 13 beginning in verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing to you, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified truly, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. 
So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It's the one to whom I, give, I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, and Jesus said to him, What you're going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Let's just pray one more time here. Lord, help us to understand these things, that we might not betray the Savior who has promised to never leave us or forsake us. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. So as this chapter opens, and, and I don't want you to miss this, it's incredibly important for today's passage. As the chapter opened in the very first verse, we saw the extent of the love of Jesus Christ for his own. He loved them to the end, he says. He loved them to the end of his life. The end of Jesus' own life. And so as this opened, we understand that he was, he was about to face, Jesus is about to face some very difficult days. Judas is about to betray him. The rest of them, most of them will scatter. And just when you think that he needed them the most, he was alone. Yet he loved them to the end. He loved them to the cross. The cross is the... Really, we could say the cross is the symbol of the extent of his love. His, his love for his own required him or, or compelled him to die in their place. Yet the phrase, he loved them to the end, from verse 1, it certainly means even more than the cross. He also loved them to their ends. The shepherd would be struck and the sheep would be scattered, but he continues to love them, even after the ascension. He loves them even until they would receive their unfading crown of glory, and then he would love them into eternity. We have to remember the, the context of, of this entire chapter. But really, the, the context of, of Judas's betrayal is that statement, he loved his own loved them to the end. Now, now we, could, we could debate the meaning of the phrase, his own there, for a very long time, but Jesus' actions throughout these verses, particularly through verse 30, his actions in this chapter prove to us that he loved even Judas. He loved his own, he loved them to the end, even to the end of this betrayal. We could even say that 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 applies even to, to Judas. So 2 Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward Judas. Not wishing that Judas should perish, but that Judas should of course, the word in 2 Peter isn't Judas, it's you. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 
Yet Judas never repented. We can see Christ's love for his own in, in how he served them. The Lord, the Lord, stoops to wash the feet of his own whom he loved to the end. We might have expected him, especially in light of this morning's passage, especially in light of this betrayal, we might have expected him to immediately defeat the devil in some sort of urgent and glorious way. We might expect him to, to devastate Judas, to pour out the wrath of God on him, but instead he, he washed his feet. Instead he, he took on the, the dress of a, of a lowly household slave of a bathroom attendant. He took on the dress of a, of a locker room towel boy, and he does this to demonstrate his love for them with an eye toward the ultimate sacrifice that he's going to make for them on the cross. He also does this as a symbol of his saving cleansing. He says, if, if I do not wash you, you can have no share with me, no inheritance, no place in my kingdom. And he says to Peter specifically, And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew, John says, who was to betray him. That's why he said not all of you were clean. So chapter 13, as this chapter opened, we saw the love of Christ. We saw Christ the servant. And then we also saw Christ our example. And we went through all of these verses a couple of months ago, I guess. But Jesus has washed their feet. And he has declared, you are clean, but not every one of you. And he will remind them of this later in John chapter 15, in verse 3, after Judas leaves, when he said, already, he says this to the eleven now, Judas is gone, and he says to them, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So what was it that made the eleven clean? Was it the foot washing that made them clean? Well, that can't be because Judas wasn't clean, and yet he had had his feet washed by the Lord himself. Now, he says, he says there in John 15, 3, that it was his word that cleansed them. The same thing that cleansed Abraham from all of his unrighteousness. Genesis 15, verse 6, and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. It was faith. The disciples heard Jesus, they heard his word, and they believed in him. So Jesus washed his disciples' feet, and he gave them a command. The foot washing was intended to be an, an example for his disciples and for all Christians of his self-sacrificing service, done in love, but love to the end. We're called to imitate him in his... Imitate him as our lifestyle. We should be imitators of Christ. We saw that there are two ways, as we looked at this several weeks ago now, there are two ways in which this is an example for us. It is in attitude and in action. This is where Jesus directs us to, to do the work of one anothering in the church. So Jesus, our teacher and Lord, on the way to the cross, stooped and washed his disciples' feet. And so question is, what reason then do we have for not stooping to serve one another? Usually the reason is, I'm busy that day. That's usually our 
Jesus knowingly and willingly served Judas. And as the, the chapter, or really this entire scene of the Last Supper in the upper room, as this continues, Jesus has cleansed his disciples. He has, he has gathered them together and washed their feet in a, in a ceremony that is kind of filled with symbolism, both of his servanthood and also of the cross. But Christianity, we know this, Christianity is not merely about externals, about what you do on the outside. And so he also will cleanse the, the leaven of unrighteousness. He will cleanse it from their midst. He's going to send one of his closest disciples out into the night. There's so much going on in this passage. We're only going to begin to kind of peel back the layers here. But I don't, I don't want to miss, I don't want you to miss the fact that this betrayal reveals not only who Jesus is, but this betrayal also reveals just who it is who is against him. This gives us a brief relation, a look into the relationship that Jesus has with his disciples, even Judas. It shows us the demands that are facing Jesus. It shows us the, the opposition that he is up against. And yet it, it also shows us his sovereignty. It shows us God's plan for the fullness of time. It shows us his, his foreknowledge, even of the details. So verse 18, I don't know if you picked up on this when we read it, but verse 18, the storyline kind of abruptly shifts, even in the middle of a paragraph. Paragraphs are in the English translations, typically. But the storyline kind of shifts. It shifts from the choosing or the election of his disciples to the imminent betrayal of Judas, of Jesus by Judas. Look at, look at this paragraph again. Just, just look back at verse 12, at the beginning of the paragraph. Look at where Jesus starts to speak. So kind of in the middle of verse 12 there. He says, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also have to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do, do them. And then in verse 18, he shifts and says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Now, <clears throat> he had implied back up in verse 10, that there was a traitor in their midst. Um, he had said there in verse 10 that not everyone uh, among them, not all of them, have been cleansed. And there in verses 18 and 19, he, he couches the idea of betrayal within the larger concept of God's mission, of calling sinners to repent. So if you look at both verses 16 and 20, Jesus talks about being sent and sending. He talks about him being sent and sending others for him. Now if you know the kind of the timeline of the New Testament, um, even of Jesus' life, you know, he hasn't, he hasn't given them the great commission yet. 
He hasn't told them in Matthew chapter 28 to go into all the world and make disciples of every nation. He hasn't told them to, to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He hasn't told them yet, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. So they probably, the 11, the 12 here, probably don't really know what he is talking about. But we know why Christ was sent. We know why Christ was sent. He said back in chapter 3, in that famous passage, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God sent his Son in order that the world might be saved through him. He's going to say to them in chapter 20, he's going to say, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And then when he said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold sins from any, it is withheld. So, <clears throat> basic level um, this, these verses here in John 13 this is about their commissioning so these disciples except for one of them these disciples will become the apostles the sent ones and they will be commissioned there in John chapter 20 in Matthew chapter 28 in Acts chapter 1 they will be commissioned the end of Mark 2, they will be commissioned to serve God by bringing the good news to the ends of the earth. They will be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. But Judas, instead of being a messenger of the good news, Judas is actually the, the archetype of 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. So listen to this passage. I'm going to read 1 John 2, verses 18 to 25, and see if this does not describe Judas. 1 John 2, 18 says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you've been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have, you have all knowledge. I, I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. This is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. See, the promises that He has made, especially that promise of eternal life, is only for those who He has chosen. Judas is about to go out from them because he was not of them. For if he had been of them, he would have continued with them. Jesus is 
also telling us here that, that Judas's betrayal is the fulfillment of prophecy. Actually, he's prophesying, Jesus is prophesying that his betrayal will fulfill prophecy. So, we're well into this, but this is the first point this morning. That this is the, this is the betrayal prophesied. The betrayal prophesied. So in verse 18, um, let me read this again. Verse 18, John 13, 18. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. Quote, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Jesus is quoting there in verse 18. He's quoting Psalm 41, verse 9. And, and when he does this, when he quotes this psalm, he is not only proving that, that he knows that Judas is going to betray him, but he's also pointing out that these things are predicted in the scriptures. Now we have to do a little bit of work here at this point. So turn over to Psalm 41. This is a psalm of David. So in John 13, verse um, 18, he quotes Psalm 41, 9. But I want to read this psalm. David wrote this. And in this, in this psalm, there's only 13 verses, David is praying for God's deliverance from a great personal betrayal. So, so listen to this prayer. Psalm 41, beginning right in verse 1. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give uh, him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore to him full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies will say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words, while his heart gathers iniquity, and then he goes out and tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me, and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity. You set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Now, the most likely setting for this great kind of personal betrayal in David's life, as he prays this here in Psalm 41, the most likely setting for this was the revolt of his son Absalom when he tried to take David's throne. So David is king. He has grown children. Turn back now. We're doing a little bit of work here. Turn back now to 2 Samuel chapter 15. 2 Samuel chapter 15. I need to read a passage of this too so we understand um, I'm just going to read verses 1 through 12. 
end of that psalm we just read. So, 2 Samuel 15, after this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used, uh, used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is from such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were the judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or a cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. Whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I had vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur and Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. And the king said, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem uh, who were invited guests. And they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering up the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel the Gileadite, David's counselor, from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Now remember, Absalom is David's son, and David is the king. So as the story continues, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but as this story continues... This revolt by his own son, it so surprised King David that he was forced to, to quickly flee Jerusalem. But what most hurt David in these events was the painful betrayal of his close friends. This hurt him more than anything. This was, it was the, the painful betrayal of his close friends and his most trusted advisors who had served as his counselors. One of those friends, Ahithophel, had shared David's table, and he now counseled Absalom as he tried to overthrow King David. So when David heard about this, he was struck by fear because Ahithophel had been a wise counselor. So jump down, now we're in, in 2 Samuel 15, I'm just going to read verses 30 and 31. So 2 Samuel 15, 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives. Just file that one back in your mind. Weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. And it was told to David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, Please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. So, we have two of David's recorded prayers about this event. His prayers as he weeps and ascends at the Mount of Olives, praying to God. 
The first recorded prayer that we have is right here, verse 31, where he says, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And the second prayer is Psalm 41, all of Psalm 41. And God answered David's prayers in a way that David didn't expect. So 2 Samuel, look at verse 16, so keep going in the story. Uh, the last verse of chapter 16 is verse 23. I'm just going to read a couple of verses here, beginning in the last verse of chapter 16. 2 Samuel 16, 23. Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted with the word of God. And so was all of the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose twelve thousand men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged, and throw him into a panic, and all of the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king, and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. The one who had eaten David's bread, who had served David as a counselor, now turned his back on him and personally planned to pursue him and kill him. If you kill the king, the people will be yours, he tells Absalom. So he's going to go personally and kill King David. But as I said, God answered David's prayers. Um, what ended up happening through this chapter is that Absalom doesn't listen to Ahithophel's counsel, which was good counsel, and even David agreed that it was as if he were listening to, the, to God himself when he would counsel. That's what the end of chapter 16 says. But Absalom doesn't listen. Absalom is not wise. He doesn't listen to Ahithophel. And so David is able to outwit him and, and outwit Absalom, and it leads to this. this will, we're doing work here. In chapter 17, so 2 Samuel 17, verse 23, this is what I want you to see. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey, and he went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself, and he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. The betrayal of the king led to suicide. Does that sound familiar? The betrayal of the king led to suicide. David, the great king of Israel, was betrayed by one of his closest friends, one who ate his bread and had now, now he lifted his heel against him. Jesus, the true king of Israel, David's greater son, whose kingdom is established by God himself, whose kingdom is at hand, whose throne is established forever. He was betrayed by one of his own disciples, one of the men who collected an entire basket of leftover bread, one who had just had his feet washed by, by the king himself, one who stayed with Christ even after Jesus had said, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of my Father. 
So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. For whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Judas sits there and eats the bread, and then he gets up and walks out. Because he never really ate of the bread of life. He never ate of the bread of life. Jesus wants his disciples to understand that this is all a part of God's purpose and plan. That's why he quotes this kind of obscure verse in a kind of obscure story in a part of David's life that I'm sure David wanted to forget. This was all a part of God's purpose and plan. So he tells them this, he even says, so that they will believe. So that they will believe because of two things. So that they would believe because he prophesied that it would happen. This is going to happen, he says. And so Jesus, in his office as prophet, remember, Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. In his office as prophet, Jesus foretold his own betrayal. Satan doesn't pull a fast one on Jesus. Satan doesn't pull a fast one here. Jesus doesn't have to come up with, with a way to explain all of this after the fact. Oh, I knew that was going to happen. He did know it was going to happen, and he told them ahead of time. We could say it all like this. The cosmic battle of good and evil is not evenly matched. The cosmic battle of good and evil is not evenly matched. Satan or Judas can only do what God permits. And then secondly, he wants them to believe this because this is an illustration of, of Luke chapter 24, verse 27. In Luke 24, 27, Luke tells us, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All Scripture ultimately leads to Christ. All Scripture leads to Christ. And so while Psalm 41 verse 9 is about David praying for deliverance from his betrayer, Jesus uses that to tell us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Look at verse 20. So we're back in John 13 now. We'll be here for the rest. John 13, 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Seems like an unrelated verse when we're talking about the betrayal. Yet throughout John, Jesus will reveal more and more and more that, that there's suffering associated with sending. In this case, the suffering is implied. In fact, he actually states it in a positive way. But the opposite of this verse, the opposite of these concepts are also true. Rejection of Jesus' sent ones equals rejection of Christ himself. Rejection of the gospel is rejection of Christ. He's telling us that the betrayal will be part of the suffering of believers. Betrayal will be part of our suffering, whether it's betrayal by family members, betrayal by fellow Christians, betrayal by friends and people who are close to us, 
As we claim the name of Christ, they very well could reject Christ and thereby reject you. Not want anything to do with you anymore. Because you have, you have claimed Christ. This betrayal here, however, needs a little bit more explanation. So this is what he does in this next section. Look at verse 21. After saying these things, so remember, the disciples don't really know what's going on. Don't really know who he's talking about. But after saying these things, Jesus is troubled in spirit and he testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom uh, Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It's the one to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. This is, this is the betrayal explained. Um, Jesus has been troubled in his spirit a couple of times in John already. John uses that, that phrase, troubled in spirit, when Jesus was at Lazarus' grave. Actually, twice when he was at Lazarus' grave. He used it when he thought of his own death. He said, now is my, my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this very hour. Jesus was greatly troubled at the horrors of death, which is the effect of the work of Satan in the world, right? He's about to be betrayed, and this betrayal would lead to death, both his death and Judas' death. But first, Jesus needs to be more specific. Up until now, John, the narrator here, he's been very clear about Judas' guilt. He very clearly points out who Judas is, the one who would betray him. Judas' reputation, as we read this, his reputation precedes him. But the disciples, the twelve, the other eleven, they're not suspicious of Judas. In fact, they have no idea who he's referring to there in verse 21. They're asking each other. And Peter asks another disciple to ask Jesus, who are we talking about? It's clear that even after Judas leaves, as we read through this, when the sign of his treachery, dipping the bread, when that is, it's missed by the other eleven, it is clear in this uh, that they still don't expect him being the betrayer. That what you do, do quickly. Is he talking about buying something? What's he talking about? Hurry back. They don't understand what Jesus is saying. Um, but before we see that it will turn out to be Judas, Jesus says to them plainly there in verse 21, one of you will betray me. And this statement, especially in the, in the broader context of the, of the foot washing, the context of the, of the upcoming crucifixion, and this gives us a deeper glimpse into, into four relationships in this passage, beginning with Jesus and the disciples. Notice that he addresses the whole group. One of you will betray me, he says. He could have singled out Judas. He could have called him out. Hey, everybody, Judas is going to betray me. He doesn't do that. He just says, one of you will betray me. Instead of causing a stir, telling them that there is a traitor in their midst, he just says that one of you. 
this was, this was the fellowship of the disciples. Others fell away, but not these men. <coughs> these men didn't fall away. These men had given up everything to follow him. These men had seen the signs. These were the men who were in the boat when Jesus walked past them on the water. Jesus had explained the parables to them. Why would they think that they would betray him? Why would he think that one of them would betray him? Luke, in his telling of this story, tells us that during the supper, a, quote, a dispute also arose among them as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. In fact, they're arguing. They're sitting there arguing over their loyalty to him, to King Jesus. One-upping one another, no doubt. It should be me sitting at his right hand. I've been faithful. I've given up the most. The same can be said today. Up until now, these men have been a, mostly a, a cohesive unit. This has been a band of brothers, the twelve. These are his disciples. This is why they respond with such alarm when he says that one of them would betray him. Really, this is what is true for, or should be true for us today. That what binds us together is our relationship with the Savior. The relationship of the body to the head, to Jesus Christ. It's Christ and our relationship to him that even makes us a church. We're not a club. This is the assembly of the saints. We are held together by His covenant, and we are called to feast on the ordinary means of grace. We are called to work at His mission in the world. And so when other agendas, no matter what those other agendas might be, so in Judas's case it involved the love of money, <coughs> but it could, be, it could be immorality, that's another agenda that creeps in and does damage in the church. It could be a love of control or power, a thirst for control. When other agendas intrude on our relationship with Christ, the fellowship and the unity are broken. And so the very idea of one of them betraying Jesus caused his disciples to look at one another with uncertainty. Who's going to betray? Not us. And Jesus does what Paul tells us to do in this type of situation. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, purge the evil person from among you. Jesus does that. The second relationship that we can see here is between uh, Jesus and the beloved disciple. He, he says the one whom he loved, the one whom Jesus loved. Uh, this is the first of several times that we're going to meet this disciple in John. And John never names him. We know from this chapter that he is, he must be one of the twelve. Uh, clearly he's not Simon Peter. Clearly he's not Judas. Yet this guy has certain uh, special privileges. So most likely, we'll just leave this here for this morning, most likely this is John himself. Uh, John is probably the youngest of the disciples. I'm, I'm pretty sure he was a teenager at this point. Here's what I want you to see this morning. John, for John to call himself the one whom he loved, that says more about John 
than it does about anything. Because Jesus loved his own. He loved them to the end. We saw in the previous sections that, that Jesus loved Mary and Martha and he loved Lazarus. And of course, God so loved the world. But, but John, in writing this book, has the advantage of, of being able to express God's incredible love toward him. Toward him personally. That's why he's able to so eloquently write years later as he writes in 1 John chapter 4. Verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And John here, in verse 25, is now at the side of the one who has come from the Father's side. He said in John 1.18, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made it known. And now John, the beloved disciple, is making known to us this Christ, our betrayed King. There's his relationship with Peter, Simon Peter. Peter's relationship with Jesus looks a little bit different, even here, than John's. Later, Peter will emerge as the spokesman, the leader of the group. I believe that Peter is the oldest. Peter is bold and quick to act. Later, in the book of Acts, he will clearly be the, the boldest preacher of the bunch, at least until Paul comes along. But in order for him to get there, in order for Peter to get to be the Apostle Peter that we know and love from the first half of the book of Acts and from his writings, in order for him to get there, Jesus is going to first humble him and then restore him. That's something that never happens with Judas. And that's the fourth relationship, Jesus' relationship with Judas. Jesus will only identify his betrayer here by his actions. Not by naming him. The eleven seem to totally miss this, or, or maybe they don't understand the significance. But, but Judas knew exactly what Jesus was doing. Judas knew exactly what Judas was doing. Judas willfully betrayed Christ. Jesus shows Judas nothing but love and patience and honor, and, and Judas promptly betrayed him. And while the eleven don't understand or don't pay much attention to these things, and, and they jump to conclusions about what Jesus said to Judas, he must be getting money to go get the food, or maybe go give money to the poor or something, John gives us one more important detail here at the end of this. Actually, there's more than one important detail here, but one I want to point out. Verse 27. After he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought, because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. That's the first, really the important detail I want you to see here. This was a betrayal that happened at night. A betrayal at night. Not only does this final statement in verse 30 there, 
not only does it move the timeline along, but it also is a clue of the nature of Judas's actions, and it's a clue to the spiritual battle at hand. Remember, in him is life, and the life is the light of men, and light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John wants us to clearly see that Satan controlled Judas. He even says that. And that he was operating in the opposition to the light. But the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so this morning, as we, as we meditate on our betrayed king, I want to leave you with one encouragement. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And that's all we're going to say about this. There is more to be said. There's a lot more that could be said. But I want to leave you with this one final encouragement. Paul writes, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Put yourself in the shoes of the eleven. We do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory, uh, of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Even as Judas betrays Jesus and goes out into the night, chooses to remain in darkness, and it only leads to death.